It is a great pleasure to have Professor Joshua Landi um, the, in our last session of this spring term. Professor Josh Landi is Associate Professor of French and Co-Director of the Literature and Philosophy Initiative at Stanford University. And his talk today is entitled <laughs> Literature, Narrative, and the Shape of Life. Thank you. Um, it's really nice to be back here. Thanks so much um, to all of you for, uh, for inviting me and uh, for, for coming out. Um, I, I should say that I just flew in yesterday, so I'm hoping to be relatively compost mentis, but um, make, make any necessary allowances. It's frequently asserted that the well-lived life involves narrative. We cannot live well without being who we are, so the conventional wisdom goes, and we cannot be who we are without placing the various pieces of our life into a framework that makes sense of them. It's sometimes further argued that specifically literary narratives, and not just genres like biography, hagiography, or tales exchanged around a campfire, provide indispensable models for the self-fashioning in question. What I want to ask today is whether these claims actually carry weight. Do we really need a narrative of our life? And if so, does there have to be anything particularly literary about it? There are, in fact, two questions at issue here. The first has to do with the nature of what, if anything, we actually expect from the notion of selfhood. What is it supposed to do for us? And what do we mean, anyway, by self? What do people like Emerson, or Polonius for that matter, mean when they speak of being true to one? What do other people, like Rambeau or Lacan, or many, many others, mean when they say that the self does not exist, that it is an artifice of, lang of language or a social construct? I have a strong suspicion that these affirmations and denials are affirmations and denials of several different things, and that many a conversation on the topic is had at cross-purposes. In my case, just to say it right away, I mean by selfhood the locus both of identity and distinction, which is to say that which makes an individual both identical to herself and different from others. I also understand it to have two separate aspects, which I'm going to call the synchronic and the diachronic, even though these terms are a little rough and ready and misleading, but maybe they'll do for now. Uh, these two separate aspects have to do, respectively, with motivational conflicts and change over time. And I take it to be something that is not given to us, but that needs to be achieved, both by efforts at self-sleuthing and by efforts at self-organization. And I begin, finally, from the assumption that bringing our actions into line with what we take to be our highest aspirations, avoiding the quasi-ubiquitous snares of self-deception, is an equally difficult achievement. All the more difficult and all the more important, arguably, under conditions of social mobility, when one cannot fall back so easily on guild appurtenance for the conferral of identity. This type of coherence is what I shall mean in what follows by the term authenticity. The second question has to do with the value of the literary. Perceptions of the utility, noxiousness, or just value neutrality of poems, plays, and made-up stories have, of course, varied dramatically over the centuries. The contemporary period is, it seems to me, one in which consumption of fiction remains high, but in which expectations for life transformation are, on the whole, rather low, not just among amateur, but even among professional consumers of culture. Many today are suspicious of promises that poetry will reveal oracular truths about the world. They worry that it may instead carry insidious ideological freight. They're skeptical of readers' motivations and so much cultural capital is to be had by pretending to have read and enjoyed Le Rouge et le Noir. They are not even as sanguine as they used to be about the capacity for transgressive fictions to unsettle oppressive hierarchies. Is there a reason anymore to take seriously a sustained engagement with imaginative works? One reason that continues to be offered for taking this engagement seriously is that fictional narratives evoke empathy for their characters, and by doing so, strengthen our capacity to empathize with real-life individuals. This would be the view of Lynn Hunt and Richard Rorty, among others. If you want to get Group A to take a, an interest in the suffering of the members of Group B, explains Rorty, reasons will never suffice. What you really need are sad stories. That's his uh, phrase. Science and philosophy are powerless, but, quote, novels and other forms of narrative, on the other hand, sometimes do affect such persuasion. 
So far, so intriguing. The problem for champions of Le Rouge et Le Noir, however, lies in the words and other forms of narrative. If all we need are sad stories, then it may be sufficient, and indeed it may be preferable to read sad memoirs and watch sad documentaries. What need is there for fiction? These, then, are my two concerns here. I want to mount a cautious defense for the role of literature in human lives. Cautious because it doesn't suggest that all imaginative works inevitably and automatically benefit every member of the audience. And because it does not deny the piggybacking of cultural capital and ideology on whatever inherent merit literary works may have. In so doing, I want to resist what I take to be a widespread tendency to reduce literature to narrative and narrative to story. For the defense to work, novels would have to be doing something more than just telling stories that happen not to be true. And I also want to mount a cautious defense for self-fashioning. I add cautious because self means more than one thing, because fashioning means more than one thing, and because we cannot take it for granted that it is even desirable to live under the auspices of a stable self, whether taken to be fashioned or given. With these provisos in place, I offer the following tentative meditations on the role of the literary in the well-lived life. Why should I tell myself the story of my life all the way from birth to present day? Why tell it as a story, which is to say, in such a way as to establish meaningful connections among the individual episodes? So there's that famous distinction between chronicle and story. A chronicle is just, as they say, one damn thing after another. But story is supposed to impart some kind of uh, superadded cohesion among the episodes. Why aim for a certain degree of exhaustivity, covering all of the major actions and events, the achievements, obstacles, setbacks, failures, sins, and graces? Theorists have offered a daunting number of answers. I'm going to leave aside here the various rationales for telling such a story to other people. Written memoirs, being public documents, serve a variety of more or less overt social functions, such as self-immortalization, think of Caesar setting an example, or reintegration with the community through confession, or bearing witness, or consciousness raising, or consolation of fellow sufferers, and so on and so on. I want to ask instead why we might tell such a story to ourselves. I'll be leaving aside an equally large number of theories stating that in practice we tell such stories all the time, whether we wish to or not. Perhaps we do, but I personally <coughs> doubt that such stories are particularly extensive or detailed. My question is not a descriptive one, but a normative one. Why should I tell a reasonably exhaustive story of my life if I have no other audience but myself? I'll begin with two famous responses, each powerful and yet each in stark opposition to the other. I'm going to term, term these rival responses the piety and the redemption view, respectively, and we'll associate the first with Aristotle under the modernizing interpretations of Alistair McIntyre and Charles Taylor, and the second with Nietzsche under the interpretations of Lanier Anderson and Alexander Nermas. My sense, as I hope to show, is that there are difficulties besetting either approach, but that parts of both must nonetheless be retained. McIntyre begins from the idea that the meaning of any given action that I make depends on its place in a series, stretching all the way to the end of my life. If I come to London and talk about narrative, it's because I want to learn from the encounter with my interlocutors here. If I wish to learn, it's because I hope to end up with something approaching a firm view on the relevant questions. And that, finally, is because I'm dedicating my life, whether successfully or otherwise, to the pursuit and dissemination of knowledge. In other words, my short-term intentions are controlled by my medium-term intentions, which in turn are controlled by my single longest-term intention, namely... McIntyre says, my desire for the good. However, I end up taking this last concept to be filled in. And that's why I need to tell myself an imaginary story about myself in order to make any decisions. As McIntyre puts it, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself upon. Knowledge of the overarching story then grants us the capacity to act in a way that makes sense to us, imparts what McIntyre calls intelligibility to our actions. Without the story, no rational basis on which to choose one course of future action over another. Without the story, no way to understand why we chose one past course of action over another. 
any action which is in prospect choice-worthy will then become, in retrospect, intelligible, just as any action which is currently intelligible must have been, at the time, choice-worthy. Intelligibility and choice-worthiness are, on the McIntyre account, just the forward and backward-facing faces of the same presiding divinity. So far, so good. But so far, we might say no need for a narrative of the past. Yes, if the meaning of actions depends on their place in a hierarchy of ends, I will indeed need to tell myself a story about my future in order to be able to act authentically. But why tell myself a story about my prior acts and circumstances? This is where McIntyre adds a second premise, which I take the liberty of terming the piety premise. He would resist this. Um, Quote, we all approach our own circumstances as bearers of a particular social identity. I am someone's son or daughter, someone else's cousin or uncle. I am a citizen of this or that city, a member of this or that guild, profession. I belong to this clan, that tribe, this nation. Hence, this is a very important hence. Hence, what is good for me has to be the good for one who inhabits these roles. Unquote. The idea is that the parameters of my life are already given to me by the tradition to which I belong. I need to look back as well as forward, therefore, in, un- in order to understand the significance of my actions and in order, therefore, to be able to uh, make wise choices. Even if I attack my tradition, according to McIntyre, I'm still perpetuating it, since reform is part of any healthy tradition. Even if I leave behind my social roles, this should only be understood as a kind of adolescent rebellion and thus, like blasphemy, an affirmation of what it appears to reject. Quote, rebellion against my identity is always one possible mode of expressing it. Unquote. There's much to be said for taking into account the social constraints on self-fashioning. We do not become who we are in a vacuum, and claims of unfettered self-performance are wildly exaggerated. Still, I'm not convinced that the constraint of tradition is quite as powerful as McIntyre suggests. For one thing, as he himself implies, each of us is born into a number of traditions, each presumably with its own normative standards. What if it turns out that their demands conflict? Should I be true to my role as uncle, for example, or to my role as member of the academic guild? What if my duties to family clash with my duties to city? Antigone is an obvious ancient case. Milkman dead and Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon is a comparable modern one. For another thing, one might wonder whether there is really no dignifying exit from tradition. On McIntyre's account, there are only three possible explanations for an individual's departure from the tradition in which he or she was raised. She's rebelling against it, and thus expressing it, or she's reforming it, and thus strengthening it, or the tradition has faded away through, quote, lack of exercise of the relevant virtues. But surely there are plenty of traditions, like the tradition of demonology, which have died out for excellent reasons. My refusal to understand myself in relation to the tradition of demonology should, I think, count either as rebellion against it, nor as an attempt to reform it. I'm simply not constrained by it. And part of the reason has to do with the very theory of action with which we began. For it's not merely the meaning of actions within a life that changes according to how the story turns out. It's also the meaning of traditions within history. Not only did purported sorcerers turn out to have been mere frauds, as 17th century law confirmed, but demonology turned out not to have meant doing God's work, but simply getting it wrong about the world. It would, I think, be a mistake to consider my present and future constrained by traditions such as that. Here's where I turn to the second approach one that Alexander Nehemas and Lanier Anderson have extrapolated from a reading of Friedrich Nietzsche, and which I'm here terming the redemption hypothesis. Anderson and Nehemas take their cue from Nietzsche's famous thought experiment of the eternal recurrence. What, writes Nietzsche, if some day or night a demon were to steal after you and say to you, this life, as you now lived it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more, and there will be nothing new in it. How well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to crave nothing more fervently than this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal? If you can will back everything that you've done and everything that's happened to you, then you may legitimately consider yourself well disposed to yourself and to life. 
and in the, in the notorious Nietzschean absence of extrinsic evaluative standards. This means that you've done more or less all that's necessary in order to live successfully. I mean, more, the more or less we can get into. Um, but you've at least met the minimal cr uh, criterion, which is actually uh, saying quite a lot. Um, so in the notorious Nietzschean absence of extrinsic evaluative standards, you've done more or less all that's necessary in order to live successfully. You've done, as Nietzsche puts it elsewhere, the one thing needful. But since no one is exempt from suffering or regret, the only way to will everything back is to conceive of it as a story, one in which later events retroactively impart a positive significance to events which once seemed irremediably regrettable. So it is that Nietzsche himself, having developed his aphoristic style of living and writing, finds himself able to affirm his atrocious migraines. So it is too that Jimmy Carter, in the wonderful example that Anderson paints for us, can affirm his election defeat, since it led to what has been called the greatest U.S. ex-presidency ever. Similar remarks could, of course, be made these days about Al Gore. Take a more recent example. Without the devastating defeat, no peace prize. Without the atrocious migraines, no aphoristic style. The suffering is, in Nietzsche's terms, redeemed. I believe that Anderson and Hamas have it right about Nietzsche, and I believe that Nietzsche has it right, so to speak, about Jimmy Carter. But I'm not convinced that Nietzsche has it right about the general case. Even if it's true that the one thing needful is to be in harmony with myself, how does this depend on me endorsing everything in my life? Being in harmony with myself sounds like a synchronic matter. What does it have to do with diachrony? Might I not be tempted to say, with Augustine, that I was once divided against myself, but that now, after much hard work, I have achieved a measure of unity. And if so, wouldn't that be sufficient without me having to endorse the phase of my life in which I was radically conflicted? Here's a partial answer, a first hypothesis about the value of self-narration in the absence of audience and in the absence of guilt or trauma. So I'm leaving aside a bunch of, uh, uh, a bunch of cases which I'm, I'm, I'm taken to be special cases. Self-narration does have a function, I believe, but that function is future-oriented. We tell ourselves stories about our past, I believe, only in order to gain practice in telling stories about our future. The stories we hear about the past of others train us to tell stories about our own past, and the stories we tell about our own past train us to tell a story about our future. And the story we tell about our future allows us to act in just the Aristotelian way that McIntyre suggests. What we learn to do is to project ourselves into the future, to occupy an imaginary standpoint from which everything we are about to do and undergo appears to be behind us, and to assess in imagination, based on our experience with genuinely past narratives, how satisfying or otherwise such a past would be. We learn, in short, to live in the future perfect. But can this actually be enough? Could such a strategy actually guarantee eudaimonia? Imagine a man who decides one birthday to produce an assessment of the year gone by, recording it like an audio diary on a roll of reel-to-reel -reel tape. Imagine further that this activity becomes a tradition. On every subsequent birthday, this man again commits his 12-month summary to tape, perhaps after listening to one or other of his previous entries. Finally, imagine that he reaches the twilight of his life, having remained rather partial to beer, bananas, and soliloquies. Well, you now have before you the eponymous hero of Crap's Last Tape, one of Beck Samuel Beckett's most poignant plays, or to paraphrase Beckett, one of the most human. Today is Crap's 69th birthday. And he is about to make, as the play's title tells us, his final recording. By way of preparation, he listens to the one he made at age 39, which in turn refers back to a tape from his late 20s. For the sake of concision, I'll generally refer to the 20-something crap as crap one, the 39-year-old as crap two, and the 69-year-old as crap three. And I should add, right from the outset, that a play whose title character is called crap it's a veritable goldmine of unintentional, unintentional comedy, a perpetual banana skin, if you will. It's Beckett's justified revenge in advance against us, his interpreters. 
I will not be able to escape his trap any more than anybody else has. Now, the three phases of life could not be more distinct, at least from the point of view of that which gives or appears to give them meaning, as well as from the point of view of the temporal orientation of their subject. Twenty-something crap, cohabiting on and off with a certain Bianca in Kedar Street, lives for love and floats in what no doubt looks to him like an endless present. At 39, however, Crap abandons love for the sake of art, dedicating himself fully to the production of literature in hopes that his opus magnum, this is his term, will justify it, which is to say, in hopes that his sacrifice will have been worthwhile. Middle-aged Crap is a man of the future perfect. And now, at 69, he knows how things actually turned out. Quote, 17 copies sold, of which 11 at trade price to free circulating libraries beyond the seas. And then he adds, with hilariously undeserved relish, getting known. He has at this point no love and no art to sustain him. Memory is all that's left. The crap we see on stage is a man who is all past. What is Crap's intention in producing this archive of annual stock-taking? It is, I think, the achievement of authenticity. In order to act, to take decisions often difficult and make sacrifices often painful, such as the choice of art over the satisfactions of love, with some confidence that they will, all things considered, render our life more choice-worthy, which is to say, more in accordance with what we consider the highest good, well, in order to do that, it's necessary to establish what's truly ours. And this means separating substance from accident, contingent from necessary, the more important from the less so. Sat before the, the fire with closed eyes, Crap too tells us, separating the grain from the husks. The grain. Now what I wonder do I mean by that? I mean those things worth having when all the dust has, when all my dust has settled. Authentic action turns on self-knowledge on knowing what actually constitutes for me the highest good, on understanding the distinction between things worth having and things not worth having. And this distinction is made from the perspective of an imaginary endpoint, the point at which all the dust has settled on an individual life. What the archive offers crap, then, is the hope of attending to his life in the most fulfilling way, maximizing satisfaction and minimizing regret over the course of an entire lifetime by considering present activities, decisions, and events in the future perfect tense, as activities that will have been performed, decisions that will have been made, events that will have taken place. There is, however, a problem, and it's a serious one. The trouble is that the evaluative hierarchy, which establishes grainness and huskness, keeps changing. Whereas Crap 1 is fully convinced that love is grain and art husk, Crap 2 believes the exact opposite and with equal conviction. Well out of that, Jesus, yes, hopeless business. Or again, just been listening to that stupid bastard I took myself for 30 years ago. Hard to believe I was ever as bad as that. Thank God that's all done with anyway. And now Crap 3 feels just the same way, and just as vehemently in relation to Crap 2. Hard to believe I was ever that young whelp. The voice, Jesus, and the aspirations, and the resolutions. In particular, the aspiration to artistry, and the resolution to sacrifice love at its altar turns out to have been a crashing mistake, a mistake with immense consequences. Two key moments confirm this insight, the first farcical, the second tragic. Crap 2 is just about to tell us the big secret, the inspiration which has finally allowed him to produce his opus magnum. What I suddenly saw then was this, that the belief I had been going on all my life, namely, but Crap 3 abruptly cuts him off, Fast forward the tape, we'll have nothing to do with it. Just when we think we're going to hear the most important idea Crap has ever had, he snatches it away from us. The second moment is the very last in the play. In the middle of recording his final tape, Crap 3 stops, pauses, removes the tape, puts the old tape back on, and listens once more to Crap 2 bidding farewell to love. I said again I thought it was hopeless and no good going on, and she agreed says the voice of middle-aged Crap, as elderly Crap listens on, spellbound. I lay down across her with my face in her breasts and my hand on her. We lay there without moving, but under us, all moved, 
and moved us gently up and down and from side to side. The play concludes with Crap 3 staring motionless as the tape runs on into silence. Everything is lost, definitively. Everything was lost, it turns out, in that crucial moment 30 years ago. Everything was lost in a way of which he is, perhaps, just becoming aware. But if this is the case, if the hierarchy of goods oscillates so wildly, so unpredictably, then surely Krapp's project was a profoundly, profoundly misguided one right from the start. Since none of us can foresee when, how, and how enduringly our axiological system will change, none of us can hope reliably to maximize satisfaction and minimize regret. We can perhaps make a guess, even an educated guess, at our future valuations, but we can never be certain. And in any case, much is out of our hands altogether. Even if Krapp has some talent, unclear, uh, the fact that he has only sold 17 copies worldwide, 11 of them to libraries, indicates that he has not become a successful writer. As Vincent Descamps puts it, one cannot become a great man through one's own efforts, through the exercise of willpower alone. The three craps cannot then be combined into a single overarching account. The narrative that links them does not reconcile them. They continue to fight over the value of what took place, to dispute this life among them, to tear it limb from limb. Three craps, three value systems, three temporal orientations. Perhaps the very idea of unifying them is foolish, even destructive. Just as crap one was wrong to imagine his life as already unified, his future as nothing but the indefinite extension of his current state, so crap two was perhaps wrong to imagine life as unifiable under the thought experiment of the future perfect. <coughs> and it may be tempting to think that crap three is learning too late, of course, like all tragic heroes, that life really needs to be lived as the series of disconnected moments that it really is. Why not just focus on the moments, as Crap 2 appears to do briefly, while recalling a white dog and a black ball? I sat on for a few moments with the ball in my hand and the dog yelping and pawing at me. Moments. Her moments. My moments. The dog's moments. Why not just collect punctual epiphanies rather than embark on an attempt at synthesis that serves surely to diminish their number? This sounds like a rhetorical question, but it isn't. There is, in fact, a reason why such a plan is not to be endorsed. First of all, a project of living life so as to collect punctual epiphanies would still be a project, would still be a future-perfect strategy for maximizing satisfaction and minimizing regret over the course of a lifetime would still be a way of living under a unifying plan. And second, and more important, if the moment spent by Crap 2 on the boat holds such power, it is in good part because it is the last moment in its series. So too, the hour we spend with 69-year-old Crap gains significance from the fact that we know it to be a conclusion, whether because death is on the horizon or because Crap is about to abandon the project and give himself over entirely to retrospection. It's the fact that Crap 2 has loved, but will never love again, that picks out this episode as particularly worthy of Crap 3's attention. It's the fact that Crap 3 has recorded, but will never record again, that picks out this episode as particularly worthy of our attention. In each case, the episode derives its poignancy from its place in a narrative sequence, from everything that's known to have preceded it, and everything that's known or assumed to succeed it. The very structure of Beckett's play, one might say, goes against its apparent anti-narrative thrust. Narrativity, here in the form of tragic order, imparts beauty even to a failed existence. We have to be very careful here, however. For while it's true that the farewell to love gains power thanks to its place in a series, it's not only because of its place in a series. And it's certainly not by virtue of its causal relationship to events further on down the chain. On both the piety schema and the redemption schema, as we saw, events gain significance by virtue of their causal contribution to the final outcome. Nietzsche's migraines are redeemed because they made him the thinker he became. 
Mother Teresa's dealings with shady characters are justified because they allowed her to tend to the sick. Nietzsche doesn't want his migraines back for themselves, but only for what they did to his habits. The same cannot be said for Crap's moments on the boat, when under us all moved and moved us gently up and down from side to side. These moments are not what changed the direction of Crap's life. It was the decision to sacrifice love to write up that did that. These moments didn't change the direction of Crap's life, but they are nonetheless worth considering, indeed more worthy of consideration than the moment of decision itself, as Crap's impatient fast-forwarding confirms. And this, I think, is what a satisfying story of a life, even a story that's satisfying in a minor key with the muted satisfactions of tragedy or elegy, stands to borrow from the form of literary narrative, and not just from story form more generally. What it borrows is a sense that the individual moments in a story can be valuable in their own right, however much power they derive from their place in the sequence of events. This is why we do not just read, but reread literary narratives. Crap himself, interestingly enough, is rereading Effie Briest in his declining years. And this is also why we often point to an intermediary episode with uncertain connections to the finale as our favorite moment in a literary text. What life stands to borrow from literature is a sense that the denouement is not the aim of the story any more than death is the aim of life. The telos of a novel is not its final page. Its telos stands outside all of its pages and requires each as much as any other. Life as a whole is not like a career in which each accomplishment builds the next in an unbroken series of rungs, but more like a love affair in which the individual moments contribute severally to an overall emotional effect without later moments being unduly weighted relative to earlier moments. Imagine if, you know, you're, you're, you're with your love partner and... Uh, he or she says, remember the day that we first met? And you say, yes, that was instrumentally very important because it allowed us to get to know each other, which in turn allowed us to fall in love, which in turn allowed us to get married. And here we are today, not very romantic. What I'm suggesting here is not just that narrative can be a formal model for self-fashioning across time, but that literary narrative can be a formal model, one that offers us types of satisfaction over and above those yielded by non-fictional varieties. The unity our narrative imparts need not be a strictly teleological one. It can instead be an aesthetic one. It's unity something like a unity of emotional impact rather than a unity of overall intention. Lest I be misunderstood, let me make clear that I'm not arguing here for a notion of epiphanic time, for the pure presence of an instant abstracted from its relationships to what preceded and what will succeed it. This is not a matter of living in the moment, as my Californian friends would say. Um, I've been out there a long, a long time. Uh, no, novelistic time is a time made thicker by protension and retention. A time that receives from future and past the consistency, as Proust would put it, of a rich orchestration. The literary instant is one that is shot through with futurity, but with a provisional futurity, a manifold futurity, and a futurity that does not exhaust its significance. Consider Julien Sorel in Le Rouge et le Noir, to get back to that example. What do his advances to Madame de Renal mean? Clearly they mean something in the overall schema of his life, but it's not yet clear what. Perhaps they are a road to perdition if she resists and informs her husband. But perhaps they're the first step in Julien's social ascension as such steps so commonly are in the Bildungsroman tradition. Yet perhaps this very ascension is going to be a betrayal of Julien's deeper commitments, in which case the seduction will turn out to have been precious in its own right, and indeed to have been compromised by its very instrumentalization. This, of course, is exactly how things stand in Stendhal. The seduction of Madame de Renal is always shadowed by the future it's going to bring about. Yet this future is always uncertain, and this future is never allowed to exhaust the significance of the moments concerned. A literary life is built from a series of such moments, and it coheres without the coherence being in all cases a causal one. 
This is the model of the care of the self that I want to propose today. On this model, I relate to my life as to a literary narrative, which is to say, I make bets on what the full meaning of current experiences will turn out to have been, where that meaning is in part conferred by future events, but not necessarily because those future events are going to be caused by them. I strive to make my life beautiful as well as effective. I strive to give it a unity of emotional impact as well as a unity of intention, thereby reinvesting each of its moments with its full existential and aesthetic weight. And I do this in part by assuming that everything will turn out to have been significant, something that is, in reality, only true of fiction. This is a choice. I'm still talking normatively here. We don't all do it automatically. It's still possible to fail at this. It's possible to choose not to try, whether by focusing only on the present or by orienting oneself toward the future in a strictly teleological way. It's possible to overlook the very possibility. And that, in fact, is the case, I think, for Beckett's crown. His life has a shape that's tragically beautiful to us, but arguably not to him. So in place of the piety view and the redemption view, I'm proposing an orchestration view. Let me summarize in six points. And then I'm going to move to something else. I'm suggesting first that it's indeed important to tell one's story to oneself, even in the absence of trauma or guilt. Because the narrative of the past is good practice for telling the story of the future, one which is indeed Aristotelian and does indeed allow me to make decisions in just the way McIntyre suggests. At the same time, and this is my second point, the narrative of the future, as it gradually heads into our past, retroactively imparts emotive power and richness to the successive moments of our lives, even where these moments do not, in fact, contribute causally to the goal we were trying to attain, or even to some other goal that we accidentally managed to attain in its place. The teleological approach, one might say, makes life readable, but the literary approach makes it re-readable. I always think of uh, Oscar Wilde saying he, he always brings his diary with him on the train because one must have something sensational to read at all times. Um, the, so the teleological approach makes life readable, the literary approach makes it re-readable. So there is, in a sense, a redemption of past moments, just as the Nietzscheans have claimed, but it works for the most part in non-causal ways. And it attaches to events which have no dramatic external consequences, whether for good or for ill. And most importantly, it grants these moments value independently of their contribution to an overall trajectory. The piety approach considers the successful life story a sequence of stepping stones, a rising tower of blocks, each block consisting in a partial accomplishment along the way to a given telos. The redemption approach focuses, in addition, on, on moments of disaster, of setback, of shame. But the orchestration approach has a better chance, I think, of redeeming all moments, including moments of struggle, which are neither stepping stone nor disaster, and indeed moments which look like wasted time, temps perdu in the pejorative sense of the word. Both Proust and Nietzsche focus heavily on such moments, and perhaps they're right to do so. For while moments of suffering are admittedly heavier to carry, the strategy for their redemption, being causal, is at least more straightforward. Third point. If there is an overall unity imparted to the past narrative, this is a unity of emotional impact and not a unity of achievement. It's here that our experience with specifically literary narrations becomes paramount. I should make it clear, point four, that the kind of assistance we receive from literary texts is one which requires sustained engagement. It's not a matter of extracting a so-called moral from a single work read once or of finding a character to emulate, but rather a matter of feeling one's way into literary form, into the form of specifically literary narratives, over the course of rereading and reading and rereading any number of stories. It's a matter of taking that as our object of emulation. This, too, is an achievement to be paid for in long effort and repeated practice, and it is entirely optional. Literary texts are, on this count, an important resource, but they do not inflict their benefits upon us. These benefits are merely offered, and it's up to us whether we even learn how to use them, let alone decide to do so. That would be point five. Sixth point. It may be possible and desirable to adjust one's way of living in light of this knowledge. That is, it may be possible and desirable to live my life with a sense in mind of the complexity of narrative 
of the narrative it will have formed. With an awareness of the fact that, like any good novel, it will carry power not only by virtue of its main narrative line, but also by virtue of competing non-narrative structures. And, finally, also by virtue of its local effects. Thus, Toni Morrison's character pilot in Song of Solomon, who spends her early adulthood roaming the country just to find a community that will accept her, gives up on that desire and decides instead to continue traveling for the sake of completing her collection of states. This is a redemption of suffering, to be sure, but a strictly aesthetic one. Okay, so this is the, the moment in which I you know, should have a big flag to wave, indicating that I'm now moving to a, um, a, a very different sub-point of this main argument. Um, uh, so what I'm, what I'm about to talk about has nothing to do with, with uh, narrative. Um, it's, well, it's a rejection of, it's a partial rejection of the notion that narrativity is all-consuming. So, um, so th this is the waving of the big non-conflation flag. In spite of everything I have said, I can still imagine a fundamental objection to the very point of departure for this paper. Even if we assume that authenticity is a valid, valid ambition for human beings, why would that necessarily involve narrative? Why couldn't it be as the Earl of Shaftesbury said? Quote, if whilst I am, I am as I should be, what do I care more? And thus let me lose self every hour and be 20 successive selves or new selves, tis all one to me, so I lose not my opinion. If I carry that with me, tis I, all is well. Galen Strawson, who quotes Shaftesbury approvingly in his article against narrativity, clearly feels much the same way. In other words, if I know my core beliefs and am able to act on them, I need no narrative. After the conversion, Augustine's life is no longer a story. Once you know what it is you are supposed to do, your opinion, as Shaftesbury puts it, and possess the capacities required to fulfill your obligations, your days may very well resemble one another in a more or less undifferentiated flow of appropriate actions. In such cases, then, isn't literature beside the point? So I'm, I'm shifting here to make an argument for the value of literature, even for those who, like Galen Strawson, uh, dispute the necessity for narrative. Perhaps it depends on what your opinion in Shaftesbury's sense of happens to be. And here I turn to my final literary case, one that shows that narrative may be beside the point, but literature is not. This example is Shakespeare's Sonnet 35. No more be grieved at that which thou hast done. Roses have thorns and silver fountains mud. Clouds and eclipses stain both moon and sun, and loathsome canker lives in sweetest bud. All men make faults, and even I in this, authorizing thy trespass with compare, myself corrupting, salving thy amiss, excusing thy sins more than thy sins are. For to thy sensual fault I bring incense, thy adverse party is thy advocate, and against myself a lawful plea commence. Such civil wars in my love and hate, that I an accessory needs must be to that sweet thief which sourly robs from me. The speaker of this poem is, shall we say, a little confused. He knows that his friend has betrayed him, but then again, his friend is only human, only an earthly being like everyone else, and since all earthly things are imperfect, it follows that the friend was simply bound to make faults. The latter's betrayal was, then, just part of the natural order. Or was it? Couldn't it be rather that the speaker is, is just making specious excuses for his friend, that the crime was a crime, and that now he's compounding it with one of his own in so readily condoning the culprit? Notice that there are actually two pairs, two pairs of judgments here, since in each case, a verdict on the friend also implies a verdict on the self. If the friend is innocent, the speaker is wrong to accuse him. If the friend is guilty, the speaker is wrong to defend him. Notice, too, that each pair of judgments is subtly contaminated by the other. For when the speaker seeks to exculpate the friend in the first four lines, he does so, in effect, by telling him he contains a loathsome canker. These are not necessarily the words of one who has forgiven. And when, conversely, he seeks to attach blame, lines 6 to 11, he uses measured, detached, almost excessively elegant language. There's something sensual about the term sensual. Which pair of views is eventually allowed to prevail? Neither. 
Instead, the speaker's soul is thrown into civil war, a turmoil powerfully conveyed by two striking features, both highly unusual in the Shakespearean corpus. First, line five, which appears to be a continuation of the first quatrain, a continuation, that is, of the speech for the defense, suddenly shifts two-fifths of the way in to self-recrimination. Shakespeare's sonnets often change course, but almost never in the middle of a line. And then, and then at the end, the final couplet stunningly refuses to float free. We're used to hearing and reciting these final couplets, so eminently detachable are they, both syntactically and semantically. But here, for the first and only time in the collection, Shakespeare ends a sonnet with a solidly clamped three-line unit. No way to detach the couplet here, since the clause it introduces, that I unnecessary needs must be, depends grammatically on the, that of the preceding line, such civil war. The civil war, we might say, has thrown everything out of kilter. This is the portrait of a man in serious cognitive disarray. Now I want you to imagine that this man travels back in time, journeys to Athens, and runs into Socrates on the steps of the courthouse. Or if you prefer, imagine that Socrates travels forward in time, hops a boat to London, and meets our speaker outside St. Paul's. What would Socrates have to say to such a man? One thing is certain, he would not be particularly impressed. To be sure, he might be pleased to note that the speaker has at least done half of his work for him by pinpointing the conflict within his own belief system. He might also be pleased to note that the speaker's primary concern is with the state of his soul. For while the poem begins with an exclusive emphasis on thou, it ends, after a variegated middle section, in an exclusive emphasis on me, the erstwhile interlocutor being unceremoniously relegated to the third person. That's weak. What's more, the first letters of the two central lines even spell me in a rather ostentatious display of possibly salutary egotism. On the other hand, Socrates might well conclude that this man is failing to care for himself in the right way. Socrates would demand of our speaker that he pick a view, make sure it's consistent with any other views he may have, and act in accordance with it. This, for Socrates, is the only way to achieve unity. What would Shakespeare's speaker say in return? I really don't think we imagine him saying, Tanuge o Socrates, as do so many of Socrates' all-too-acquiescent interlocutors. Perhaps instead we imagine him telling Socrates that he has no interest in unity, that he's concerned only with honesty, and the honest truth is that he's conflicted in such a way that to pick a side would be to do an injustice to himself, to his friend, or to both at once. Socrates, therefore, should get lost. But I don't think that this is quite right either. And the reason I think that is that the couplet, while not being syntactically freestanding, nonetheless forms a unit of extraordinary compactness, density, and balance. That I and accessory needs must be to that sweet thief which sourly robs from me. Something is being said here, to be sure, but something is also being done. And that second something is entirely different from the first. Everything slows down in the last line. It has six stresses instead of the usual five, with a spondy replacing one of the ions. And everything becomes somehow transfigured, purified, distilled. Somehow the torture of internal division miraculously gives way to, or at least is miraculously accompanied by, a strange composure. What's responsible for this magic? A figure of speech. The couplet, which begins and ends with a first-person pronoun, sandwiches talk of the wayward friend between them. At the extremities, I and me. On the inside, sweet thief and sourly robs, linked, of course, both by sound and sense. What we have on our hands is a chiasmus, that figure of involution which bookends one pair of like objects with a second pair of like objects. Me, you, you, me. Or to be more precise, me as guilty party, you as quasi-innocent party, you as inexcusable culprit, me as victim. We find again the two pairs of judgments with which we began. The difference is that here they're brought into an impeccable, almost invulnerable order, a mesh so tight one comes to feel strangely glad of its protection. This poem is not a static evocation of an unchanging situation. It is instead a drama, and its denouement is the performance of a redemptive mental operation. In Act One, the poet indulges his feelings of tenderness towards his friend. 
In Act 2, he indulges his feelings of indignation. In Act 3, he steps back from both positions, stands aloof from each, and registers their irresolvable conflict. In Act 4, he contains this conflict within the protected confines of the chasm. And in Act 5, with the conflict safely contained, he's free to acknowledge and savor something like the beauty of their interplay. He stands back, as Harry Frankfurt would say, from his first-order desires, his desire to forgive the friend, his desire to punish the friend, but not in order to choose between them, not in order to register a second-order desire. There is, as the speaker sees it, no way to eliminate either first-order desire. That's the force of needs must be in line 30. He is here not to resolve the opposition, but to hold it in a steady tension. So let us imagine Shakespeare's speaker telling Socrates in no uncertain terms to pack his toga and return to Greece. Shakespeare's speaker is interested in internal unity. Indeed, it might be said that his greatest fear here is internal sedition. His greatest achievement, a type of internal detente. Treatment of the friend, as we have seen, is a lesser concern. He is interested in unity, but he's not interested in the type of unity Socrates has to offer or to demand. A type of unity that he would consider unattainable and perhaps rather colorless into the bargain. Instead of a theoretical unity of self, provided by the putative correct response to the lover's misdeed, our speaker offers what we might term a poetic unity of self. A unity not of belief system, but of character. He is unified, one might say, as one who loves, since anyone who genuinely loves will feel, when betrayed, both a temptation to rationalize and an impulse to condemn. To the horror of Socrates, it turns out that such unity of character not only permits, but positively requires, at times, a conflict of attitudes. Removing one's anger or one's tenderness, even seeking to remove one or the other, would mean ceasing to be a lover, perhaps even diminishing oneself as a human being. Such, then, is the magic of the chiasmus, figure par excellence for the containment of explosive oppositions. Or rather, such is the magic of the mental operation for which it stands. Language itself does not perform the operation, but syntactic structures are metaphors for mental operations, and poetry is thus, among other things, a powerful stock of formal models for the introduction of aesthetic unity into our own necessarily divided lives. Not a narrative, not a meaning, not even something that allows us to make sense of our existence, but an aesthetic redemption, which is arguably the only kind there is. Thank you.